Well, good morning, everyone. Let, let's just start with a quick recap of last week's lesson. Um, according to Romans 9, why has Israel not believed in Jesus, the promised Messiah? Why has Israel failed to enter into the kingdom of God? Do you remember? And, and how in the world are we supposed to make sense of that fact based on everything that we've read in the Old Testament? What I mean is Israel was the nation who received God's covenantal blessings and promises. Uh, theirs is the adoption to sonship. There's the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship and the promises. There's other patriarchs. And from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God overall. But now Israel is estranged from God by and large, right? How is it that the apostle Paul, he journeys all over Asia Minor, Minor and there's, there's a consistent pattern of Jews rejecting the gospel of Jesus Christ and only of a very small remnant being saved. What happened to God's election of Israel? Uh, what happened to the promises that God made to Abraham and the patriarchs? What happened to the natural heirs of God's promises, the Jews? There are two sides, there are two components in answering that all those questions biblically. We looked at one component last week, Romans 9, 1 to 21, and there the Apostle Paul explains Israel's unbelief in terms of God's sovereign choice. Uh, God chose some in Israel to be saved, but not all, because God isn't obliged to save every single Israelite, is he? He's not obliged to save you. He's not obliged to save me. Uh, chapter 9, verse 8, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. And, and God does this, Paul writes in verse 11, in order that God's purpose and election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls. So the freedom of God in election is Paul's first answer as to why only some Jews are being saved. Uh, we can think of that as being the God is sovereign part. In the passage that we're looking at today, Romans 9.30 to 10.13, the apostle gives us the other part, the human responsibility component. And as you uh, see at the top of page one of your handout, um, I phrased this in the form of a question. So look at that. Why are many Gentiles and only some Jews being saved, but Israel as a whole is not. And Paul's response certainly isn't convoluted. It's not complex. He says Gentiles are submitting to God's righteousness. Israel is not. It's just, it's as cut and dried as that. Uh, Gentiles are submitting to how God justifies guilty sinners. Israel is not. What's Israel doing instead? She's relying on her own legalistic, works-oriented folly. Israel has failed to enjoy the blessings of Messiah's salvation because she has been preoccupied with earning a right standing before God based on observing the law of Moses. And so has stumbled over the cross of Christ, where God's righteousness is truly manifested. So that's the reason. It's not all election, election, election. I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy. Yes, God is absolutely sovereign. But we learned last week that his sovereignty never functions in such a way as that, that human responsibility is curtailed or minimized or mitigated. 
Uh, human beings are morally responsible creatures, right? We significantly choose, we rebel, we obey, we believe, we defy, we make decisions and so forth. And so we're rightly held accountable for such actions. But this characteristic never functions so as to make God absolutely contingent, right? Like a secondary, a responder, a reactor. God is not dependent upon us in some sense. Um, And if that's not understood, if both those propositions are not held in tension simultaneously, God's sovereignty, human responsibility, then our view of the gospel, of, of God's covenantal blessings, indeed of all salvation history, will be massively distorted. You won't be able to read your Bible properly. It won't make sense. So let me just mention one thing more before we get rolling, kind of a heads up warning for our text today. The themes that Paul is discussing in this chapter are quite Jewish and and they're closely tied to the law of Moses. So close, in fact, that Gentiles often can find a passage like this confusing and distancing and, and even irrelevant. Uh, what does this have to do with me, Pastor John? I mean, this is all ancient history. We're, we're one year into a COVID pandemic here. I'm, I'm hanging on by my fingernails. I want to hear a Bible study based on a text that's more practical, more useful, more applicable to real life. And to that, I would respond without hesitation, uh, then get ready, right? This, this text is just what you need, Christian. It's a gospel feast for your soul. Um, Brothers and sisters, God has taken action in Jesus Christ to reverse our natural damned condition. Uh, If that doesn't put spiritual steam into your stride, I don't know what, what will, all right? We've been saved from hell. And so as believers, we need to inquire exactly what God has done how he has done it, why he has done it, and how it all fits into his plan of redemption, past, present, future. God's people understanding these glorious truths, and then God's people worshiping him and living for him in light of those salvation, historical, covenantal realities, uh, not only will that change your life, Christian, it brings God great, great glory. Also. If you're with us today, if you're joining us and you're not a Christian, or or if you're listening to this on our website 10 years from now and you're an unbeliever, then this lesson is for you. Uh, It's my prayer that God would use this lesson to serve as a warning, as a corrective, because as things presently stand, friend, you're on a path that leads to eternal destruction. You know your heart. If your plan for getting in and staying in God's good books is based on you earning a good reputation with God. If your eternal hope is in some scheme other than Christ and him crucified, then today's Bible lesson will clearly show you that you need to immediately abandon your course. Uh, You must humble yourself and submit to God's righteousness in Jesus Christ. And so forever lay your impossible burden of earning God's divine favor at the foot of Jesus cross. So yes, this text is quite Jewish. And even though Paul's arguing from a particular historical situation, 
God will show us the futility, the uselessness of any plan of salvation that relies upon a right standing before him gained by scrupulously conforming to divine commands and standards and thus earning righteousness instead of submitting to God's righteousness through faith in the completed work of Jesus. So let's begin. You can see your first point, Israel's false pursuit. Why did Israel fail to obtain righteousness? And I'm going to explain what obtain righteousness means in a minute, right? But Paul gives us five answers to that question over the next nine verses. Why did Israel fail to obtain righteousness? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works, number one. Number two, they stumbled over the stumbling stone of Christ crucified. Number three, they have zeal, but they lack knowledge. Four, they sought to establish their own righteousness. Number five, they did not submit to God's righteousness. So five answers over the next nine verses. Look at verse 30. What then shall we say? That the Gentiles, who did not pursue righteousness, have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith. But the people of Israel who pursued the law as the way of righteousness have not attained their goal. Now, again, the, I guess the first thing we need to do is define righteousness, right? What is righteousness? Because that's a, that's a very religious sort of word, I suppose, right? We don't use it in everyday speech. Um, look at the bottom section of page one of your handout. And I, I apologize, I think maybe some of the formatting got changed. It always does week to week, but righteousness means a right standing before God. It's a legal term. It's a courtroom term. It's very closely linked with justification. And perhaps later on, you can cast your eyes over the, the six aspects of justification in Romans on page two of your handout. It goes hand in glove with what we're reading here. I'm not going to go through it, but you can read it yourself. But friends, here's the verdict. The Bible tells us that we're all sinners. We're all rebels. We all disobey God. We're all, all of us, idolaters. We all love things in this life more than God. And so we've all attracted the justice of God's wrath. That's the situation. That is the legal condition of every person who has ever been born on this planet with the exception of Jesus. We all stand before the bar in God's court, guilty as charged. And we must have that sentence reversed. We desperately need a right standing before our creator God, or else we'll be justly punished for our sins in hell forever. Those are the stakes. Which is why the Bible calls what God has accomplished in Jesus' death and resurrection for sin, good news. Because it's only in the gospel that that sentence of condemnation is reversed. So look at the definition again at the bottom of page one. Righteousness, a right standing before a holy God, a right standing that is the product of God's justifying work in Jesus Christ. Now, Israel knew the score. Uh, but they went about trying to achieve that right standing before God one way. And the Gentiles went about it another. And that is the contrast that Paul sets up. Uh, so when we read in verse 30, well, we, we could read it like this. Verse 30, 
What then shall we say? That the Gentiles who did not pursue a right standing before God have obtained it. A right standing before God that is by faith. That is through the means of faith. All right. Not, not because of their faith, not on account of their faith but through the means of faith, through the instrumentality of faith. So think of faith as, is like the pipeline that goes from Calvary's hill to the sinner's heart, right? That's how we're to think of it. We're saved through faith. Now, to describe first century Gentiles as not pursuing righteousness, that is a major understatement. First century pagans were pursuing anything but righteousness. First century pagans made the Rolling Stones look like choir boys. What our Gentile ancestors formerly didn't give a rip about, right? Things like not having a right standing before God, not being included in citizenship of Israel, uh, being foreigners to the promises God made to the Jewish patriarchs. They didn't care about any of that stuff. All those things they did not pursue. Now, though, they have received all those things from God through faith. What does Paul mean by that? What's the point he's making? Let me give you an illustration. Uh, imagine a, a painter in the California hills back in the 1840s, right? He lives in a cabin in a valley by a stream. He's a nature lover. He needs peace and quiet for his artistic work. And, and one day, though, in California, gold is discovered. So this is the California gold rush. And now the land all around him is bought up by prospectors, people from all over the world who have given up everything, who are suffering extreme hardship, working their fingers to the bone, panning for gold. And so his neighbors, they all toil away year after year, but they come up with nothing. But then one day, after a heavy rain, the painter steps out on his porch and he sees in his front yard the exposed top of a nugget of pure gold the size of a basketball, right? He's rich beyond his wildest dreams. He's now obtained what he did not pursue. That's the way it was with the Gentiles. They certainly hadn't been pursuing a right standing before God. They were bone ignorant of God's promises. I've just read three quarters of our Bibles, right? They're excluded from the covenant. They had no concept of righteousness. But when in his grace, God freely offered it to them through the preaching of the gospel. They responded in faith, and so they obtained it. Israel, on the other hand, they pursued righteousness, and how? But they didn't obtain their goal. Why not? Because Israel was looking for righteousness in the wrong place. Have you ever heard that 1980 country and western hit by Johnny Lee? I don't think it's that great of a song, but looking for love in all the wrong places. Well, Israel was looking for righteousness in all the wrong places. Uh, Israel was looking for a right standing before God in the law covenant of Moses, not in Jesus, not in his gospel. And, and then compounding the error, Israel was pursuing this right standing before God, not only just in the wrong uh, place, but in the wrong way, by works, not faith through faith like the Gentiles. So verse 31, but the people of Israel who pursued the law as the way of righteousness have not attained their goal. Why not? 
because they weren't scrupulous enough. They weren't kosher enough, not circumcised enough, not sincere enough, not disciplined enough, because that's where the human mind naturally goes, doesn't it? I mean, we just naturally assume that favor with God can be earned by being a good person because, I mean, that, that's how people earn favor with us. The people of Israel who tried so hard to get right with God by keeping the law, they never succeeded. Why not? Verse 32, because they pursued righteousness, not by faith, but as if it were by works. And right there in verse 32, we see what separates biblical Christianity from every, every other religion under the sun, right? Every person on this planet we're either submitting to God's righteousness in the finished work of Jesus Christ through faith, or we're seeking arrogantly to establish our own righteousness by works. Now, how people try to establish a right standing before God, apart from faith in Jesus Christ, I mean, that, that's different from person to person, culture to culture. It, it can be by following the law of Moses, trying to follow the law of Moses, or, or by observing the five pillars of, of Islam, or by being infused with the grace of the sacraments of the Roman Catholic Church, without which, Rome teaches, there is no salvation, or, or by completing a 12-step program, or helping little old ladies cross the street. It, it's really anything where we can say, at the end of the day, there. You know, I've done X, Y, and Z, so now I can stand before God's judgment throne with confidence. Have you, uh, have you ever heard of Michael Bloomberg? Bloomberg is currently the eighth richest person in the world. Uh, he was a three-term mayor of New York City from 2002 to 2013. He also was a candidate for the 2020 Democratic nomination for president of the United States. Uh, the New York Times, after he left being his three terms of being mayor, they interviewed him. And, and let me just read to you this, this excerpt from the New York Times. <clears throat> but if Mr. Bloomberg says he may not have as much time as he would like, he has little doubt about what would await him at a judgment day. Pointing to his work on gun safety, obesity, and smoking cessation, he said with a grin, I'm telling you, if there is a God, when I get to heaven, I'm not stopping to be interviewed. I am heading straight in. I have earned my place in heaven. It's not even close. How many people today think like that? I mean, that is so sad. It makes you want to weep. It's tragically pathetic. I have earned my place in heaven. It's not even close. The Bible teaches us that the first step to obtaining the righteousness of God is abandoning our own. The first step in obtaining the righteousness of God is abandoning our own. I, I love the old hymn, Rock of Ages. Uh, I'm, I'm so looking forward to when we can gather together again and sing this hymn, you city. All the labors of my hands could not meet thy law's demands. Could my zeal, no respite, no. Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. 
See, there's no completed checklist of religious duties anywhere in that song, is there? Hear, hear those lines, beloved. Just savor them. It's the same truth that Paul's preaching in this passage. Thou must save, and thou alone, through faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus for sin. And ultimately, this is where Israel went wrong. She stumbled over the stumbling stone of the gospel, the stumbling stone of Christ crucified. Verse 33, as it is written, and here Paul quotes the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, See, I lay in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. And the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. For those Jews who have rejected the Messiah, Jesus has become a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And, and stumbling and fall in this context refers to God's condemnation at the final judgment. But for those Jews and Gentiles uh, who believe in Jesus, they will never be put to shame, which means they will be vindicated at the last judgment. But here's the question. Why did Israel stumble over Jesus? It's simple. Because Israel misunderstood the purpose and the function of the law of Moses. Israel believed that right standing before God could be earned by keeping the law's commands. So all the labors of my hands as I keep thy law's commands, demands, uh, as my zeal, no respite knows, will get me into heaven. That's the, that's the hymn that they're singing. Uh, but that was never God's intention in giving Israel the law. This is so important to understand. To put our Bibles together, Scripture tells us that the law of Moses revealed God's holy character. Uh, the law showed Israel what God required of her, right? It revealed her sin. Uh, those are all important functions of the law. And Paul tells us in Galatians 3 that the law supervised Israel in the time before Jesus came. But obedience to the law covenant of Moses could never, ever confer salvation. Not, un not unless an Israelite kept it perfectly. And not one Israelite, with the exception of Jesus, ever did keep the law perfectly. But, but do you see what happened? Israel had pressed sort of the, the law of Moses up to their faces, believing that in it, in the law code itself, was found eternal life. So do this, don't do that. And, and there's Christ crucified, naked and scandalous and shameful and cursed, a stone God has placed in their path to either uh, build their faith upon or to stumble over into hell. He's the one to whom the law pointed. He's the one in whom the law of Moses is fulfilled. Jesus is the God-man who canceled the record of the legal charges against his people in his own crucified flesh. But Israel believed that in the law code itself was found eternal life. And so they stumbled over the stumbling stone of Christ crucified. They didn't submit to God's righteousness. Instead, they tried, they sought to establish their own righteousness. So, what have we just read? Let's just summarize this quickly. Why did Israel fail to obtain righteousness? Reason number one, because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. Reason number two, they stumbled over the stumbling stone of Christ crucified. And now starting in chapter 10, reason number three, they have zeal, 
but they lack knowledge. Look at chapter 10, verse 1. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God, the Israelites, is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. So is Israel sincere in her religion? Yes, Paul has no doubt about it. But it's possible to have great zeal for God, yet still be lost. I mean, think about that. A sincere zeal for God, yet lost, perishing. Because a person can be zealous, they can be sincere, but be sincerely mistaken and ignorant, right? But in Israel's case, they're deemed guilty by God in their ignorance and their zeal for the law because they've refused to believe the truth that was preached to them. Israel is a people who have deliberately rejected the preaching of the gospel, and so they stand condemned. We'll be looking at that more, this, this rejection of the preaching of the gospel next week, Lord willing. But just, just skim ahead to chapter 10, verse 21. Here's God's point of view of the whole thing. He says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. Israel has rejected God's saving righteousness, preached to them in the gospel because they desired to erect their own righteousness instead. So it's not a lack of information, right? This is sinful perversity at work. Chapter 10, verse 3. Since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the culmination of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. And you see, those two verses, three and four, they're really the key to understanding everything here, all right? Now, I, I know we're getting into theologically deep waters. This is the deep text. It's complex, but pay close, close attention. And bear the context in mind. In verse one of chapter 10, we saw that the desire of Paul's heart and his prayer on behalf of Israel is that they would experience salvation, right? I mean, and Paul, Paul loves his fellow Jews. He wants them saved. Well, verse 3 is written in that context. It's a salvation context, or rather, Israel's lack of salvation. Israel did not know God's righteousness. That means Israel didn't believe that God had fulfilled his promise to reveal his saving activity in Jesus Christ. They rejected Jesus, and so they did not submit to God's righteousness. They stumbled over Jesus' scandalous cross. But recognizing their need of righteousness, if they were to stand in God's holy presence, that was never in doubt, Israel sought to establish her own righteousness, a righteousness tied to human effort. Israel tried to find a relationship with God through keeping the law of Moses. Now, it's, it's very difficult in this kind of a text to find earthly parallels, all right? Uh, but, but ladies, uh, imagine a man that you dated ages ago pops up out of the woodwork, all right? And he reminds you of the great thing that the two of you had going on in, in the distant past, right? Back in high school or university or whenever. And then he starts trying to get all suave with you, right? Remember what we had back then, girl? Let's, let's rekindle that, that flame of love. It was so great. And then you say to him, what? That was ages ago. That is so over. That ship has sailed. 
what Paul is faulting Israel for is trying to find a relationship with God through keeping the old covenant law. But that era has ended, right? It's all been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. It's over. That ship has sailed. Jesus has inaugurated a new covenant. The old is gone. The new has come. And so as we come to verse 4, we need to picture all the angels of heaven blowing their trumpets at once as Paul puts his inspired pen to paper. Christ is the culmination of the law. Jesus is the end of the law, the goal of the law of Moses, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. You see, with the coming of Jesus, the goal toward which the law was always pointing has now been reached. The, the era of law has ended, and so Israel's pursuit then of righteousness based on the law completely misses the point. And it always did, even back in the days of the Old Covenant. We must understand this. Human legal righteousness was always an impossible attainment. Jews were never, ever saved by obeying the law of Moses. What Paul is saying, what Paul's saying is that now the culmination of the law has arrived. The finish line has been crossed. It's Jesus, the Messiah and the salvation that he brings. And, and as a result of Jesus coming and bringing the law to its culmination, right standing before God is now available for everyone who believes, Jew and Gentile. Faith, apart from ethnic origin, faith, apart from works, is the sole basis for experiencing this gift that God offers the world. Which leads us now to our second point, our much shorter and concluding point. Point number two, the contrast between the righteousness of the law and the righteousness of faith, verses 5 to 13. Okay, here's what we need to understand. Just hang on just a little bit longer. I know it's complex, but guys, this is absolutely glorious. Israel believed that having a right standing before God by keeping the law of Moses was not only possible, it was the only way of obtaining righteousness. To Israel's thinking, the law itself was a roadmap to salvation. I mean, they couldn't have made a bigger mistake, right? Obey it and you earn life. After all, that's what Moses said back in Leviticus 18, right? So I want you to turn there. Go to Leviticus 18, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You must not do as they do in Egypt, where you used to live, and you must not do as they do in the land of Canaan, where I am bringing you. Do not follow their practices. You must obey my laws and be careful to follow my decrees. I am the Lord your God. Keep my decrees and laws, for the person who obeys them will live by them. I am the Lord. So now Paul asks, okay, Israel, I mean, that's what you believe. But what does Moses actually say about attaining a right standing before God by observing the law of Moses? That, that verse you're so confidently quoting, Leviticus 18.5, maybe you need to reread it. Paul's like, uh, 
Diego Montoya from the film uh, The Princess Bride, right? You keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. <laughs> so Romans 10.5, Moses writes this about the righteousness that is by the law. Leviticus 18.5, whoever does these things will live by them. And this language of life in verse 5, this is, this is a reward for obedience, isn't it? We could translate Leviticus 18.5 as God saying to the nation of Israel, keep my decrees, keep my laws, because the one who obeys them will have life, eternal life. But here's the thing. God is being 100% literal. Whoever does these things will live by them. Keep my decrees and laws and you will have eternal life. The reward of life is contingent upon perfect obedience. That's because the law's way of making a person right with God requires perfect obedience to all its commands. Paul says this, but he says the same thing in chapter 2, verse 13 of Romans, doesn't he? For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. So, yes, the law can confer eternal life. In theory, through legal obedience, one could be declared by God to be righteous. All that's required is absolute perfection. And that's a prospect that shouldn't be filling anybody with hope. That kind of legal obedience is impossible. You remember Paul's spiritual diagnosis back in Romans chapter 3? And he's citing uh, Old Testament texts here. Uh, there is no one righteous. Not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have become, together have become worthless. There is no one who does good. Not even one. New City, the rigorous demands of the Mosaic Law Covenant should have made the Jews despair of ever earning God's favor. And instead, they should have been seeking to be justified in God's sight the same way Father Abraham was justified through faith. That's Romans chapter 4. That's the whole point of Romans chapter 4. But remember, remember Genesis 15, 6? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as what? Righteousness. Now, I want us to turn to also to Deuteronomy 30, verse 11. But keep your finger in Romans 10. I want us to look at this passage before we close, and then we'll go through the remaining verses almost in one shot. The historical context of Deuteronomy 30 is that the people of Israel are just about to enter into the promised land of Canaan after wandering 40 years in the desert. And Moses' purpose in writing these verses is to prevent the Israelites from evading responsibility for doing the will of God by pleading that they don't know it. Moses tells them, God has brought his word near to Israel so that you might know uh, and obey him. So Deuteronomy 30.11. Now, what I, what I am commanding you today is not too difficult for you or beyond your reach. It is not up in heaven, so you have to ask, who will ascend into heaven and get it and proclaim it to us so that we may obey it? Nor is it beyond the sea, so that you will have to ask, 
who will cross the sea and get it and proclaim it to us so that we may obey it? No, the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart, so you may obey it. See, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. So follow Paul's logic. In Romans chapter 10, verse 5, Moses writes this about the righteousness that is by the law. Whoever does these things will live by them. And that, of course, is an unattainable goal. Verse 6, but the righteousness that is by faith says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven that is to bring Christ down, right? I mean, he has incarnated. Or who will descend into the deep that is to bring Christ up from the dead? Right? Jesus was resurrected. So do you see, Jesus has come. Jesus has died. Jesus has been raised from the dead. And therefore, God has made righteousness readily available to guilty sinners through faith. We don't, we don't need to do anything. Everything that's necessary has already been done. Christ has come. Christ has died. Christ has been raised from the dead. We don't have to ascend into heaven or plumb the depths of the sea. All we need to do to attain a right standing before God, be we Jew or Gentile, is respond in faith to the preached gospel. Now, I'm going to say that again. I'm going to repeat myself because perhaps, friend, your, your, your wondering ears are amazed that such a thing could be true. It, it sounds too easy. It sounds too good to be true. But here it is. All we need to do to attain a right standing, a legal standing before God, be we Jew or Gentile, is respond in faith to the preached gospel, the good news of what God has accomplished in Jesus' death and resurrection for sin. Believe. 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 But if you don't, what that means is, what it certainly proves, is that you're content to erect your own righteousness. It means you're content to reject God's saving righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ. And that's a decision that will cost you your eternal soul. Friend, do not turn your back on so great and free a salvation. God, for his part, has acted to make himself and his will for his people known. His people have no excuse for not responding. In fact, the gospel message is in, in the heart and on the mouth of every believer. Verse 8, the word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the message concerning faith that we proclaim. And, and here now is the very simple response to this word that is so near. A simple response that mediates God's full salvation. Verse 9. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. And it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. Praise God. <laughs> now, now, be careful. Paul's not laying out salvation here in two discrete steps. You know, step one, believe in your heart and be justified. 
Step two, confess with your mouth and be saved. No, th those two lines are, are running parallel. Each throws light on the other. It clarifies the other. So faith generates confession. Confession is born along by faith. That is, but it's belief in the heart that is the crucial requirement, right? Confession with our mouth is the outward manifestation of our inward response. That's what Paul's getting at. And of course, the content of what we are both to believe and confess is the gospel. Guilty sinners, be they Jew or Gentile, believe the truth that Jesus Christ died, was raised, is exalted, and now reigns as Lord. And if we believe, as verse 11 tells us, we will never be put to shame. We will be delivered at the time of judgment. Jesus will save us. So we'll close with verse 12 and 13. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Amen.